Hi, and welcome to this installment of our new books at the Heyman Center panel podcast, sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. I'm Anne Levitsky. Today's podcast celebrates Professor of English and Comparative Literature Alan Stewart's book, The Oxford History of Life Writing, Volume 2, Early Modern. First, we'll hear Alan speaking about his book at the panel, and then I'll bring you my interview with Mark Van Doren, Professor of Humanities, Julie Crawford. Uh, thank you to Molly for those introductions. Um, I'd like to thank the people who have sponsored this, because I should do that, the Society of Fellows and the Center for the Humanities, the Office of the Divisional Deans and the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, and the Department of English and Comparative Literature. So thank you to everyone. Thank you all for coming this evening. Um, I was asked to say a few words about this book and how it came together, and it's kind of awkward because as an academic I'm meant to have sort of an intellectual trajectory and I'm meant to, you know, have wanted, I, this was commissioned, I was asked, <laughs> um, and so I had to kind of work backwards into deciding what to do with this book. Um, this is the Oxford History of Life Writing, it's a series of seven books covering English life writing, medieval to contemporary, this is volume two wonderfully titled Early Modern, um, which is not my original title. So the book was not much my idea, but I was intrigued when I was asked to do it. I was intrigued about who had turned down the invitation before me. <laughs> but it's also something I had been thinking, I, I thought I should do it, it would be good for me. I, as Molly mentioned, I wrote several Early Modern Lives back in my youth, before I came here. Um, one of Francis Bacon with my supervisor Lisa Jardine, and and one of Philip Sidney, one of King James VI and I and really never thought about what an early modern life was. I got interested at that point in the materials out of which we write them, and that led me into sort of manuscript studies, letters, and that track of my career I can see came out of trying to understand why I was using the materials I was using to write them. But it never occurred to me to sit down and think about why, what I was doing in putting together um, a life of someone from the early modern period. Um, so life writing had not been an interest of mine particularly, and I think partly it's that awful term, life writing, which even now I still dislike though it's on the front of my book. I've always found it to be a lazy and vague bucket into which a lot of different writings can be put, some of which have little or nothing to do with each other. Um, so when I was told I was writing a book on life writing, I was, in, I was worried about how do you bring together biography and autobiography, um, memoirs and diaries. And the, the early modern life writings I study in this book are bewildering um, in, the, in the variety of terms they themselves use. They don't use biography and autobiography. They, so just to give a list I, I, I have in the introduction, memoir, epitaph, memorial, journal, course of examination, observation, receipts and payments, confessions, history, adventures, juvenile rambles. <laughs> there are lots of rambles, by the way, late 17th century, big on rambles. Minutes, vocation, books of accounts and remembrances, books of songs and sonnets, true historical relation. So, but whatever the Despite their radical generic diversity, what all of these pieces do is set out to write a life, either the author's own life or somebody else's life. And in the end, that was my criteria for inclusion in the book. I didn't want to do life writing that was accidentally life writing. 
um, which other people have done very well. I wanted the authors to actually set out trying to write someone's life. So my initial idea was that the book would want to take apart the notion of a life that we have now. And I was looking at you know, biographies and, and autobiographies written today, either of people living today or people living in the past, tend to have a particular arc to them. We are, we are fascinated by parentage, family background, upbringing, educational formation. As people get older, we are obsessed with sex lives, sexuality, <laughs> sexual identity, um, relationships. And then we are very interested in how people die, um, illnesses, dying, and death. I had a hunch that early modern lives had different coordinates. Um, does life begin at birth or at baptism? Um, and people are very clear about that in period sometimes. Or conception, or somehow in a family's far-reaching past. Was one's sexual life a particularly interesting part of one's social identity or not? Or self-understanding? What was the role of family or marriage or friendship? What were it, it, attitudes to illness or to dying or death? If you believe in an afterlife, is the end of life death even? So these are questions I thought I would be looking at. And they are in the book, sometimes fleetingly, um, and sometimes they're answered. But ultimately I found the book forwards no major argument about life writing in early modern England, at least as far as I can tell, and maybe I will learn otherwise <laughs> this evening, because I found I was un unable to embrace any overarching theory. Um, previous critics have tracked the rise of modernity or of individualism, Protestantism, Puritanism, scientific empiricism, and I found myself instead seeing discontinuities and highly idiosyncratic writings. So what you end up with in this book is 15 case studies. Um, it must be a hellish read. I'm, <laughs> if any of you have got any, very far, I'm, I'm, I'm very impressed. Um, they're 15, 15 short chapters, um, ranging from familiar people like Sir Thomas More, read through his son-in-law his son William Roper's life, um, John Fox's Lives of Protestant Mar Martyrs, Samuel Pepys's incredibly creepy diary. Um, <laughs> to others that have been less studied, like the 16th century composer Thomas Wythorn, who wrote an amazing 90-page um, autobiography, Puritan diarist Richard Rogers, the Catholic recusant and translator Toby Matthew, and one previously uncommented biography, manuscript biography, of a woman called Lady Lu Constance Lucy by her daughter-in-law. So these are like 15 rabbit holes into which I fell. Um, some of these figures I could have written a book on, um, and perhaps I will. I have, I have certain uh, cravings to follow some of these further. Who? I think it's Toby Matthews. I like Toby Matthews. <laughs> I'm still unsure now, a few months after finishing this, whether my inability to see a larger picture is my problem, or whether it's the materials I'm looking at. So I'm all the more eager to hear what my colleagues have to say. This book has not yet received any reviews, so these are my first reviews. <laughs> and you can watch me react to them. <laughs> with some trepidation. Now, we'll hear my interview with Mark Van Doren, Professor of Humanities, Julie Crawford. I'm here with Julie Crawford, Mark Van Doren, Professor of the Humanities at Columbia. Thanks so much for speaking with me today. I'm so happy. So I thought we could start by talking about um, how you discussed how Alan's book rejects older claims about life writing, um, 
that these documents show a long march towards modernity and the rise of the individual, or that they portray the scripting of a coherent self, which you mentioned at the panel. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you could say more about these claims and how Alan's book is pushing back against them. Okay. Well, I'd say the the claims are pretty standard in the sense that once people started talking about early modernity as exactly that, mm-hmm. that it became associated with things that we recognize as modern, particularly the idea of, of the tr- sort of triumph or centrality of the individual. And um, what that, the, how that relates with sort of life writing is the idea that the sort of sovereign individual is also the sovereign um, author mm-hmm. and self that is somehow coherent, um, realized, and in a way triumphalist. Postmodern critics push back against that, the idea of, of any self ever being like that. But mm-hmm. what I love about Alan's book is he sort of shows how dispersed the author function is in one sense, right? That, that in almost all of these texts, it's not just that the lives are really palimpsestic, sort of written, rewritten, overwritten, written in dialogue with multiple other kinds of texts, so that, you know, they're using sententiae or they're using um, account books or they're using other people's poems or they are using um, you know economic sort of rubrics literally lines on a page to sort of write their lives and that there are multiple agents involved in writing these lives so what we would maybe recognize as co-writers sometimes but also editors readers auctioneers, um, uh, you know, a range of other what sometimes people call non-authorial agents, but which he really shows play a role in sort of bringing these texts to us um, or to any other readers. The other thing that I'd say about that is that he makes it really clear that these sort of forms of life writing are also not necessarily about celebrating or even narrating the individual but are often about cohering or creating or forging um, communities radical communities religious communities Um, sometimes it's interfamilial or familiar community in the way that we recognize but again not in a a sort of restricted um, familial sense but often in a much more sort of dispersed sense of how people lived socially Hmm. Yes, I remember you were talking about a case of the music instructor through mm-hmm. his works was um, forging a professional identity, yeah. which I found really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is great about that example is that he intentionally, I think his name is Whitehorn, mm-hmm. and he intentionally sort of eschews any really specific local details or naming names as if he's trying to create sort of a role, an inhabitable role for anybody else who wants to take on this particular kind of identity, which is as a music teacher in a well-heeled household. Mm-hmm. Um, so that the things he sort of writes and imagines are almost templates, right? And so, for example, there are song dialogues or lyric dialogues for between a teacher and a young female pupil. Um, and, you know... It's sort of a role that somebody could then sort of come in and have it or make happen 
um, the chapter is really brilliant because Alan talks about the sort of various controversies that Whitehorn is sort of skirting around, confessional controversies, political controversies. And I think a, a more facile reading would have just seen that as him trying to sort of skirt topical disaster. But Alan sort of sees beyond that to see it as the way in which Whitehorn is sort of imagining um, creating this sort of professional category that's then shareable by other people, sort of forging a way for somebody to make a living and what we still recognize as a really difficult sort of, you know, job trajectory. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting to me thinking about the the history of institutions and musical mm-hmm. institutions that it seems like one could possibly make a case for tracing institutional knowledge back to this template mm, formation. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know a ton about the connections backwards, but I do know that mm-hmm. institutions of music are still very popular, or mm-hmm. still very um, common today, and mm-hmm. work from a certain template of teaching music. Yeah, sure. But also, I think the other thing that I really love about Alan's book is that um, and it goes against, in his classic, in his characteristically subtle way, it goes against sort of arguments about this being the rise, this period, also early modernity being the rise or the sedimenting of the restricted nuclear patriarchal family. Right. And the sort of vision that he's giving of, of social life in these familial lives and these community lives in these great houses and also not great houses. He doesn't just write about wealthy um, communities is how many different kinds of labor, work, art, um, and sociability, right, trafficked through society, right, that people lived in these sort of dense webs and networks of connection, and that a house was by no means sort of restricted to a married couple and their biological children, but in fact that there were so many different kinds of relations relationships institutionalized and non and para-institutional like Mm. with the music teacher for example um and other kinds of what we would see as service professions absolutely and i wonder if we can um continue thinking about this idea of the familial and the extra familiar because you close your remarks by talking about traditional female roles Mm -hmm. and how they how alan's book is offering a different view of Mm -hmm. these in this period wonder if you could say more about that. Sure. My favorite chapter was chapter 10, The Familial Lives of Martha Molesworth and Constance Lucy. Um, he, again, a lot of life writing before Alan's book has sort of said, okay, people were writing family narratives, they were writing family lineages, and sometimes they were doing that in order to put themselves into that lineage, for example. So that's an argument that's made about women, trying to write themselves into a family lineage. Um, but in this amazing chapter of Allen's, he shows that they were not really um, primary, neither of these women were primarily concerned with that sense of a family lineage in the sense of a, of a reproductive family or even an ancestral family, but were much more interested in what we might recognize as sort of para-lineal um, relationships mm-hmm. or much more complex relationships, stepmother, particular friend, ward, right? Um, A ward is like a foster child. And that these were the kinds of relationships that life writing was also 
it was both recording and instantiating, but also we can then as historians or people who think about the past or think about the history of the family or even the history of sort of sexuality and, and vowed kinship can go back and tell a different story with them. My favorite detail is that she leaves her particular friend six of her trenchards, and a trenchard is sort of like a big platter, and she says so that whenever this particular friend cuts on it, she will remember her. And for me, it's this sort of amazing trace of like a shared table and a shared practice of community um, that isn't how we often or a previous generation used to think about women, maid, wife, widow, all sort of hewed to a biological story or a marital story or a reproductive story, Mm -hmm. as opposed to these other kinds of forged and meaningful kinships. And life writing, you know, in the way Alan shows it, sort of offers us, if we're willing to look, and not be retelling the story of the rise of the individual or the familial entrenchment or women having a place in the patriarchal family. But instead, this other story, if we're willing to look to see the actually really complex webs of kinship in which people lived. Yeah, absolutely. And I love the, um, the material aspect of mm. the trenchers, mm-hmm. that she remembers her when she does this action and feels mm-hmm. the trencher mm-hmm. below her which is beautiful like, yeah such a lovely image I know it is lovely there's a lot of lovely details in the book because Alan is such an amazing archival scholar and, and sort of a book lover scholar <laughs> and so there's this amazing count of this crazy recusant hunter named Topcliffe who sort of marked his catholic books with red thread oh. so he could remember where these sort of details were or or Sir Thomas More the martyr Sir Thomas More's daughter writing him a letter when he's in prison that she wrote in coal. Mm-hmm. And these sort of details that show that life writing, you know, that these documents were not just sort of carriers of relationships or even of text, but they themselves are sort of records of these amazing material lived conditions of how people felt about their books mm-hmm. and felt about how you might inscribe on paper or, or things like paper the records of how you were living and feeling at a given moment in time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as a medievalist, I work with manuscripts mm-hmm. and just feeling the book and seeing the size of it or feeling the weight of it in one's mm-hmm. palm or looking at some where people have grasped the pages mm-hmm. and turned. can tell you so much about the use of the book and its life totally. beyond just that. Yeah, project. Alan really wrestled with Pepys's, um, I don't even remember, it's something like 3,100 manuscript pages of oh his God. famous diaries <laughs> that were written in shorthand. Right. And one of the things Alan really reco- reckons with that I find really moving is the extent to which the shorthand was both a foreclosing of other people's interpretation of what he was doing or understanding of what he's doing, mm-hmm. and also sort of an invi- invitation to seeing the sort of cryptic or um, secret life of a Samuel Pepys, but also just the volume. And Alan talked candidly, actually, at the Heyman Center about what does it mean? How can one find a way to move through 3,100 pages of, of text? Right. right, yeah. How do you decide what's important? How do you touch down in it? Oh my gosh! Yeah, I—I mm-hmm. I mean, I don't even know how how you would approach such mm-hmm. a massive object. Yeah. But, but yeah. Right. I mean, and that makes you know that's an invitation to think about what we see as the idiosyncratic. Yeah. Like, oh, is there a drawing? 
Is there a graph? Is there a thumbprint? Is there a manicule? That's the pointing finger in the margin. Oh, yes. Right. Love those. Yeah. <laughs> that tells you something is important. Um, and Anna really goes beyond that to think, you know, about how the forms of a book, like the ledger, for example, of an account book, mm-hmm. right? Or he does some interesting stuff with the difference between an italic and a secretary hand, giving you different information about about the life. Like, we often look for authenticity, the expression of how somebody was feeling, right? right? As opposed to what does it mean that somebody records a life that is in units of labor, mm-hmm. right? Or is in units of consumption, right? right? Um, and that to sort of have a relationship with that document where it isn't about it sort of lacking or not being interesting for how we think about the history of a life, but instead something that tells us uh, the multiple different ways in which people understood recording a meaningful life. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I, and I, I, when I was thinking about this, um, I was relating his focus on the material to the to how you describe these lives as palimpsestic mm-hmm. themselves, mm-hmm. which I thought was striking and really fitting, mm-hmm. scraping away mm-hmm. or, you know, coming, being used as a binding for another book mm-hmm. or something that I see a lot of. So, yeah, um, yeah so these lives are, as we've been speaking about, closely connected to these forms and these mm-hmm. material objects. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, because I'd say Alan also, is a, as a thinker, is very... As somebody who came from the British system where you have much greater access to old books and manuscripts. Yes. <laughs> to working in American university culture where you have somewhat less. I mean, the Folger does. We have some, obviously. Right. Every good research library has old books. But also trying to think in his own writing of how you can narrativize mm-hmm. what most people will never get their hands on. Absolutely. Right? So almost all the books that he's talking about that have... The, these, you know, multiple textual forms or the red thread or the coal writing. Alan, in his really beautiful prose and his really careful and respectful sort of desire to lay out the story of these books for his readers, we get access to them without actually feeling those books in our hands. As yeah. you say, that's great, and it's wonderful to get access to that. <laughs> and I invite everybody to the Rare Book Library in Butler. Um, but you know, the one thing about really good scholarship is it can offer you, um, you know, an introduction to that or even a relationship to that without holding the thing itself in your hands. Absolutely. Yeah, that to me is such a striking feature of the book. It's a remarkable book in that sense, yeah. It's really wonderful. Yeah, very thorough and very inviting. And it's like sort of a welcome mat laid out to the, not just the sort of history of life writing, but also to the history of the book. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Thank you so much for speaking with me. So a pleasure, a true pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast, celebrating Alan Stewart's The Oxford History of Life Writing, Volume 2, Early Modern. I hope you'll join us next time when we discuss Brinkley Messick's Sharia Scripts, a historical anthropology. From Columbia University's Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Anne Levitsky.